All right. So first of all, I want to say to the couple here, thank you for sitting there because it feels like you guys are so far away. And I was like, it's just going to be awkward tonight. And so thank you guys. Um, so I'm just going to be talking to you the whole time. Um, so um, I'm happy you guys are here. Um, so earlier I was um, talking to all you guys here, and, and the, the common thing that you guys have been asking me, I got asked four times in the last half an hour, are you ready for Christmas? And um, how are you supposed to answer that? Uh, no, honestly, like, because the, the, there's this common question now. That's like the, the, the conversation begins by people saying, so are you all set for Christmas? So are you ready for Christmas? And I'm just being vulnerable. I don't know how to answer that because by Christmas, what are we talking about? Like, so are you asking if I've done all my Christmas shopping? Yes, I'm prepared for that. Are you asking, so am I prepared to have people over my house? I'm there aren't going to be people coming to my house, so I'm all set for that. Like, or am I prepared for the spiritual implications of Christmas in my heart? I don't know, because I don't even know what those are. And so, like, there are these questions, I'd say common questions that people ask that I honestly have no idea how to answer. And that is a common question that's been going around. And I'm sorry I'm, I brought that up because it's going to go, go around and people are going to ask you, are you ready? And then you go, how do I answer that? Because before... It was so easy to be like, no, I got stuff to do. Or, or um, yeah, I'm totally ready because you've done your Christmas shopping. Anyway, it bothers me. Like, there are these simple questions that people ask that actually have complex, like, the answers are complex. Um, the other one that bugs the tar out of me, the simple one, simple question. It's like, how are you? Okay. <laughs> how do we go there? How are you? I, I am someone who is very inquisitive and I try to tell the truth at all times. And as soon as someone says, how are you? I totally know all they're saying is hi. And I should just say, hi. But by saying hi, I'd say, I'm doing great. I'm fine, thanks. I understand that. But they're asking, how are you? And so, um, so do I say, I'm fine, I'm great. But is that telling the truth? Because there are other things I'm not great. Okay, sorry. So someone came up to me and said, how are you? And then I stared at him back and I was like, I don't know how to answer this. And he said, okay, I have a hard time saying the answer to that also. I'm going to help you out. And it really did. The thing he said was, it helps to such separate. So are they asking about your situation? How are you doing situationally? Or are they asking existentially? So, so if you separate and you assume that they're asking, how are you doing situationally? Then you can say, I'm great. Because a bunch of us, our situations are fantastic. But existentially, it's a mess, okay? Like, and that's the thing that causes the problem. If you bring those two together and then someone asks you, how are you? You feel compelled to say, I'm great. Because you actually are and you don't have anything to complain about. But you feel bad about complaining because who you actually are inside 
it's a mess. And, it, 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 and so you're confused, you're unhappy, you're sad, you're, you're chaotic, you don't know if who you are is who you're supposed to be, but your situation is great. You have, you have a family, you have a home, you're fed, you have a future, you have a 403B, you're like, it's great, my situation. And so when people come up to you, how are you? Just think they're asking about my situation. I'm great. But if they ask you, how are you existentially, then the conversation begins. I bring this up because existentially seems to be more important and it has more of a spiritual tone to it. Um, existentially, um, people are, are more in the same boat than you would think, but we're engaging different conversations. For instance, if someone's engaging the conversation of how are you and you answered the situation, but they're asking existentially or vice versa, then we tend to get jealous of someone else's situation of the, or the place that they are existentially. So if you're not following, that is fine. You're not supposed to because this is supposed to be confusing because the human heart is confusing because on the outside, people tend to present this idea that we are doing awesome because we are. But we're also doing terribly at the same time. And th there is this poetic chaos inside of our hearts that says, who am I? Where am I going? Is this all there is? That there's, this, there's this part of our hearts that experiences pain and doesn't know how to process it. Um, there's parts of our hearts that doesn't feel hope. There's parts of our hearts um, that are just confused. There are parts of our hearts that are really unhappy. And if we're totally honest, those things are there. And the good news for us who are honest about the places that our hearts are existentially speaking is God loves those parts of our hearts. In fact, there's this, um, there's this idea and this theme throughout the Old Testament um, that, 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 that wherever there's hopelessness, there's chaos, there's the absence of peace, there's sadness, there is the anger, God comes into those spaces and says, I can do really good stuff with that. In fact, it seems that there's this theme in the Old Testament that whenever God is about to do something huge, like a big culture shift or a change, or, or he's about to, to turn things on its head, the person he begins that shift or that change through is typically born of someone who shouldn't bear a child. Um, so if you think about the Old Testament and the patriarchs of the church or, or people who turn things on its head, you th think about the, the parents that they had and they were typically born of people who were barren or too old. Um, you think about Sarah giving birth to Isaac. You think about Rebecca giving birth to Jacob. You think about Hannah giving birth to Samuel. You think about how Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. Um, there's this theme that pops up several times throughout the Old Testament of, of the, these people who should not, could not give birth to children, giving birth to powerhouses. 
right? Like God speaks kind of into these people who have had this, this whole upbringing of they had a desire to conceive, a desire to give birth, a desire to have children, and they couldn't. And they couldn't. And they, I bet you, felt hopeless, chaotic, sad, angry, confused. And into those stories, God says, I will give you a child who will change the world into that. It's like in barrenness, in darkness, in chaos, God says, I do my best stuff in here. And so if you think about going back just very gently back to our hearts, our existential hearts, not our situational heart. If I could cut up on things, call it out. It's like a game of charades. Feel okay with it. It's kind of awkward for the both of us. So just call it out and it'll be fun. We'll interact and play games. Okay, so um, think about the hearts in this suit. They are very similar. And so God has this thing that when there is barrenness, when there is darkness, when there's hopelessness, God says, yes. Right? All right. So our church is coming to the end. The end, uh, there's a sermon series that we are all doing on the book of Ruth. And to be honest, it's the end. And I got here and I thought, it's time to just begin all over again. Because this book has been phenomenal. Phenomenal, and, and knowing the things I know now about this book, I want to start over again and see it again for all of its beauty. It's a story about this person named Naomi. And in the beginning of the book, the first sentence of this book sets the time and the place. It says, during the day of the judges. That's how it begins. And it's setting this time that the Judges, um, that was a time that there was chaos and people did whatever they wanted to do. And then it talks, there's this time of famine. And so all of God's people, they scatter all over the place. So it's a time of the judges, there's chaos and there's famine. And then here is Naomi and her family and they go on an adventure. The first chapter of the book, uh, this book is titled The Death of Naomi's Family. That's the first chapter of the book, The Death of Naomi's Family. So Naomi, she has a husband and she has two sons and her husband dies and her two sons die, die after they've, they've been married for 10 years. And so Naomi is by herself. This is the first chapter of a great book, The Death of Naomi's Family. And this is how it begins. By the way, Naomi, her name actually means pleasant. Okay? Pleasant. Just hit the pause button. I just want to talk about that name just very quickly. I would hate it if someone just called me Pleasant. Oh, he's pleasant, right? Who wants to be pleasant? It's like if someone came up to me and asked, how are you? And I said, I'm pleasant. And like, but, and then I was thinking, there's a bunch of us who do that. Like if people come up, how are you? I'm pleasant. Things are pleasant. Thank you. And I was like, man, that's so boring. A lot of us 
are comfortable in being boring. And this first chapter is about the death of Naomi's family. And I would almost say the death of Naomi herself being pleasant. Because in chapter two, she goes home. She goes back to Bethlehem because there is a time of feast and harvest. And and the people say, hey, is this Naomi? And she says, no, call me bitter, right? Bitter. She goes from pleasant to bitter. And I love that. Why do I love that? Because she's honest. How many, it's like if someone said, how are you? And then you think, do I answer from the existential point of view or from situational point of view? I'm pleasant or I'm bitter, right? This seems like Naomi is done playing around. How are you? Are you pleasant? No, I'm bitter. And because of the story of the death of her family, except she's bringing home one of her daughter-in-laws whose name is Ruth, who is this iconic person of someone from the outside who encounters God, who accepts the truth of God, grabs onto his promises, and she takes them to the bank all day long. And God blesses her, and God's blessing her, and God's blessing her, and she's providing for Naomi. And she's providing because Naomi cannot provide for herself. She can't take care of herself. She's old and and she isn't going to get a husband again. And she doesn't have any hope for the future. Like if you think about Naomi, she had things like she had things. She, she had, she had a husband, she had sons, she had a family. Christmas was going to be awesome that year, you know? Like, and then she's coming home and she has absolutely nothing at all. She's changed. And so, so you have to think she's experiencing pain. She's experiencing sadness. She's experiencing sorrow. Um, she's confused, hopelessness, all of those things that are almost a good formula for God to go, Yes, I do good things with this. And Naomi is being honest about it. Call me bitter. I love it. So, so, so Ruth, she um, goes then into a field. Um, she finds this guy whose name's Boaz. That whole thing happens. And that brings us to chapter four, verse 13. And this is our passage today. Here's the thing I was thinking earlier, just by myself, just thinking. It's typically at this point that that, that the evangelical church says, it's over. You know, the story is totally over because the story of the book of Ruth is about this guy named Boaz and Ruth and they hook up and everything's happy and that's it, it's awesome, it's over. No, because I want to go back to the beginning after I found this, the end of this book. Like, it was like, oh my gosh, this changes everything. And so I'm excited to share this tiny little passage that everyone just throws out. 
because it's brilliant. Here we go. Uh, chapter four, four, verse 13. Here it is. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made, help me out here, when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. All right, that's the, the first um, part of chapter four, verse 13. So Boaz and Ruth, they get married and then it happens. And then it says, the Lord gave Ruth the ability to conceive a child. And, and she isn't um, someone that is typically considered as someone who could not conceive a ch child. But here in this text, it seems to be she can't because God gave her the ability to conceive. And so I just want to pause for a second and say, do you think it's possible that she could not conceive a child before the, that God gave her the ability to do so? Because if you think about it, she was married before for 10 years. Here it is. Check out this text. Here's how the, the, the text begins in the at the beginning of the book. Help me out here. Let's do this together. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They were married to Moabite women, one named Orpha and one named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both and Kilon or died, and Naomi was left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. So they were there in Moab for 10 years. And the primary purpose at that time had been to have children. She did not have any grandchildren. Naomi had no grandchildren children following this time that her sons have been married for 10 years. How's that possible? And so they're at this spot further on that, that Boaz and her daughter-in-law get married. And it says that God gave her the ability to conceive a child. Now, if you are a Hebrew scholar, you take that idea and you take that concept and you start this book all over again. Because the idea possibly that she could not conceive a child changes everything. So I don't intend on spelling that out for you at all, but I'm saying go home, growth through the book, think about it, talk about it, explore it, because it's seriously brilliant. Because in this story is yet another example, uh, the example of barrenness, heartache, pain, sadness, dissolution, like all this stuff. And God's saying, I will give hope into this situation. I will start something different into this situation. The thing though, that it's easy to cut up, get caught up in pen is to think that this is the end of the story or this was the point of the whole book all along. But it isn't because of how this book began. It began with the death of Naomi's family. Who is the story about? Naomi, not Ruth. And this is the end of the 
book. I, I want to talk to you just very briefly about the Hebrew authors. There is... Um, <laughs> There's this idea that Hebrew people have um, that is so fun. It's called a chiasm. And what a chiasm is, it's like a form of poetry. Um, it, it, and there are different books of the Bible that are these perfect chiasms. Um, that it says how the book begins is how it's going to end. And the, the second chapter in is the second chapter out. And the third chapter in, third chapter out. And they help inform the others. And this particular book is a perfect chiasm. And so it's saying that how this book began with the death of Naomi's family informs directly on how this book is going to end. And second chapter in to the second chapter in, and then there's a chiastic shift in the beginning. Again, it causes you to think it's time to begin all over again and have different eyes in this book. And so it's... So if this book, it's truly about Naomi, and if this book begins with the death of Naomi's family, how's it going to end, right? So the passage continues. Here it is. Help me out here. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Okay. So the first part of, part of this, uh, this passage is in 13. It talks about Boaz and Ruth, right? And they, they get married and they have a child. It's all about them. But then it quickly jumps to Naomi. It says, like the people of the city come to Naomi and they praise Naomi and they say, blessed be the God that they, that God has given who a child? Naomi, a child. And they're all celebrating that Naomi has a son. How do you explain that? Because it isn't her son. It's not her kid. It's Boaz's kid. It's Ruth's kid. But the chiasm says it's Naomi's kid. See where we're going? And so if you don't understand this, good for you. I don't either. But this is Hebrew theology and it's blowing things up and it's saying it's bigger than you think. This is not this, this happy little storyline. This is the bigness of God, the creator of the earth. So if you even pretend to understand it, stop it. Okay. And so we have Boaz has a child and Ruth has a child and, and the city is praising God because Naomi has a son and they start freaking out. Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son. Praise be to God. Naomi has a son. Because this was the greatest thing that has happened. Naomi has a son. And then they say, um, may he sustain you in your old age. May, you know, like, because he was born of who? Ruth, 
who they begin to then say is better than seven sons. You have no idea how hardcore that is. Because so for a female in that culture, your only goal is to produce a son. Like you pop out a son, you are good to go forever, right? And, and then the number seven in Hebrew theology is eternal. It doesn't mean seven. It's like all of them, all the sons. And so for the city to say, she provided for you more and better than, and she just blew up everything more than all the sons on the entire planet. This woman, Ruth, and the city is celebrating her because of her faithfulness, her, her heart, her dedication, her, I mean, ugh, and everyone saw it. This is beautiful because it's true. It's true. Because of her heart for Naomi, she provided the, 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 like, the tangible physical gospel in this season of brokenness, hopelessness, pain, desolation, and darkness for Naomi who had no promises of hope at all. She was entitled to nothing. And the city said, Naomi has a son from someone who could not conceive a child apart from the grace of God. This is all about Christmas. <laughs> so the passage continues on. He said, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Whose son is it? The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Here's something to think about. Who called him Obed? Who called him Obed? Did his parents call him Obed? No. Everyone who bear testament to the story, this whole book, they, they knew the story. They knew Naomi who was pleasant and they knew the Naomi who was bitter. And they knew the Naomi standing there in front of them, holding a child. And they said, that is Obed. Who knows what Obed means? Worship, right? It means worship. They knew Naomi as pleasant and then they knew Naomi as bitter and then they knew Naomi as worship because it was this journey, this journey of truth, this journey of God's provision, this journey of experiencing hopelessness, darkness, this journey of her experiencing barrenness. Because what this book does, what the author does, that if you don't go to the end, you will never see it, is the people of the city respond to Naomi as if she is the barren woman who could not conceive a child. Because she was. 
And this was what caused a city and a culture to proclaim that baby boy is named worship. In that, in that idea, you began to ask, if someone asked Naomi, how are you? How would she respond? How would she respond at the different parts of her journey to herself, to God, to the city? Because it seems to me that whenever she began to be honest about her situation, to be honest about her heart, magical things began to happen. It seems to me that God does his best stuff in the story of our heart that we try to cover up by our situations. When people ask me, how are you? And I say, I am doing awesome because I am doing awesome. That's the end of the conversation. But when people ask me, how are you doing? I think they're asking me the existential question, which I don't ever really think, except if God asks me that and says, how are you doing? And I say, I'm a freaking mess. That's the beginning of a long, beautiful conversation because in there are the things and the components that God says, this is the stuff that beautiful things are made of. This is the stuff that changes the earth. This is the stuff that if, if I can breathe into it, if I can breathe into your barrenness, your, your heartache, your pain, your hopelessness, you're going to give birth to something great. There's the beginning of this book, it says, in the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, things were chaotic and people did what they wanted to do. And in the end of this book, how does it end? It ends by saying he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. You see, this book took place in the time of the judges, before the idea or conversations or concepts that there was ever going to be a Hebrew king. Conversation wasn't even out there yet. But there was a shift from chaos to order. It was like God saying in this, this chaotic mess of famine that, that there will be harvests. In this, this mess of being barren, there is pregnancy. The kings are coming. Like there is this shift that is about to take place, this foreshadowing, even before the first king Saul was even born. There was a text saying there will be a king, a redeemer. Because God is always one step ahead of brokenness. So if you are in a place where you are experiencing hope or, or, or hopelessness and pain and desolation, confusion, if I asked you, how are you doing existentially? And you would say, I am a freaking mess. And I would say, good for you. Because it's in that situation that Christmas really means something. 
I'd say, good for you, because that's what the earth was saying whenever Jesus was born. I would say, good for you, because that kind of human heart is when the Holy Spirit crashes into it, it actually bears some good, amazing fruit that changes everything. Good for you. I find that if I answer the question, are you ready for Christmas, existentially speaking? My heart says yes, um, because I am, uh, the idea, my heart cries out when it is empty and broken and filled with pain, and I cry out to be filled with the presence of God. I am ready to celebrate Christmas, the presence of God here on earth. Yes, I long for it. I long, like it says in the Bible, like a, 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 a person about to give birth and my body aches to feel the presence of God. Yes. But if I'm just talking about my situation and how I am doing, Christmas just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm set for Christmas. Christmas is a conversation of your heart. Christmas is an engagement of your heart in the collision of heaven into it. It is saying it's not the time of the judges anymore. This is the time for a king. And this is not a time to be pleasant anymore. No one enjoys pleasant people. They're boring. Being bitter is better than being pleasant. But the world is ready for Obed worship in your heart that has encountered God that is really, really here. And everyone who sees it will point their fingers and say, the name of that is Obed. That's worship. And in that moment, you know that you're experiencing Christmas. So are you ready for Christmas? God, we thank you for the things that you are doing and the God that you are in all of your brilliance. We thank you that you are a God who speaks into the barren hearts and the barren bodies. Those of us who have not conceived anything good in a long time. God, Thank you for filling us with hope and peace and joy and love, all the themes of Advent. Come, Lord Jesus. We are ready for you in all of your glory to crash into the space, making this your kingdom. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. God, we thank you for the ability to sing the songs of our heart, to tell you the truths of how we feel about you and the things that you are doing inside of us. God, do things inside of us. In Christ, I pray.